Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont and Associates. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review, is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news and topics. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Good morning and welcome to the first show of November, November 3rd already. Some parts of the country I saw this morning covered with snow. Maine had like some ridiculous snow amounts. I'm sure it's coming to me soon, but uh, how about you, Bob? Any snow? (laughs) We did. We had uh, probably maybe an inch on uh, Friday evening, you know, perfect for Halloween. The kids loved it. And, uh, but it was gone by, for the most part, uh, Saturday afternoon, still some North face coatings laying around on Sunday, but, uh, it's winter's here, man. And, and it's picking up where it left off. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. It just happens in a day. One day it's, it's like, you know, nice fall and warmish oh. and then all of a sudden it's freezing cold and now it's snowing. Mm-hmm. People are wearing, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not right. <laughs> no, absolutely. Not. <laughs> it's a good thing. I put the pool away, you know, so it's no big deal. Lock her up and shut her down and, all that fun stuff. Not to worry about it. So, uh, no, actually, the yard crew's out there today, mom and kids. So they're working on leaves, and it all they all came down at once as well. So, yeah, yep, absolutely. All right. Well, before we get going, I just want to thank our our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks on the internet. Audible has a massive library of more than one hundred thousand audio programs, and they're providing our listeners. With an exclusive offer, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio and you can download a free audiobook. Absolutely no strings attached. There's you know no cost to you. I would just go and download your free audiobook. Uh, also, today's show is also being sponsored, I should say, by uh, New Jersey Cares. And this is very exciting for us because we do this every year and we've kicked off starting today with New Jersey Cares, our annual co-drive. Uh, last year, we took in around 625, 650 coats, and that was up significantly from the year before. This year, we're trying to hit 1,000 coats. And you know what's great about this, Bob, is that um, all the coats go back to people in New Jersey that need coats. I mean, it's not like you're going to give it to an entity who's going to resell it for a profit. These coats go directly to those people in Jersey um, who need them? I mean, it's, this is like, yeah, it's it's like the equivalent of handing your coat to somebody that's cold this winter. So um, it's a really great, uh, I think, cause, and we do it every year. And this year, I would love to see if we can get close to a thousand coats. Um, the coat drive goes from today, November third, and it's going to conclude this year on January thirty first. So you've got between now and January thirty first to bring in your, your gently used coats. Men, women, children, whatever you have, bring them in. Uh, it's all tax deductible. You get a tax deductible receipt. You'll get a free mug. Um, but it's really for a great cause, and, and it's it's the one event that we do 
every year that I look forward to. Um, I like to see how many coats come in because every coat that comes in, you know that somebody who is cold this winter, you know, is going to be a little bit warmer because of you. And I really, you know, I like this charity. Jersey Cares is a great organization. Uh, they also run one in New York, same type coat drive. And so it's really a great thing. And, you know, I encourage everybody come down to our Jersey office, drop off your coat, pick up your tax deductible receipt and mug. You know, five minutes out of your day, you're going to throw these coats out or give them away. Anybody, anyway, why not give them away to some people here in Jersey that really need them? So. Yeah, charity uh, starts at home, and it's nice to uh, have have an organization. We have some near, here in Michigan as well that when you give locally, it stays locally, and you can see the results. Especially with New Jersey, you know, you saw it, uh, Governor Christie's press presser the other day that apparently some people still are affected by Sandy. Well, there you go. You got people that need a little bit of help still, and obviously, as we talked about, winter is here, so it's time to give. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's a really great cause. I mean, people like Governor Christie, you know, they've lost some weight. I bet you he's got a ton of coats that he can give. And uh, right. know, I, on the other hand, have gained weight. So I have a ton of coats that I can give, too. So, you know, every year your kids outgrow your coats and, and you know, you either outgrow or, or you lose weight, hopefully. So bring them in and support a great cause. So we're thankful uh, to be working with New Jersey Cares again. Also, just want to talk for a second about last Thursday's show. We had on um, as a guest Amy Applebaum who is a motivational speaker, sort of um, entrepreneur coach, and she primarily focuses on women, although she you know, also does work with men as well. Um, but it was a, an interesting interview. She had a lot to say. Um, she gave some advice. She gave a little bit of background about herself, you know, how she started off as a waitress, got fired from her job, and now uh, is the owner of, of a number of companies and been on CNN and CNBC and some of these other programs uh, and, and sort of giving advice to women. So that was a good show. Anybody that is in business or even if you're not a woman, just in business, good show to, uh, to download and listen to. And then we've got coming up this Thursday, Alan Fisher's back on with his wife, Carolyn Fisher. Alan Fisher, for those of you who don't know, world champion arm wrestler, and he's going to be starring in the second season of Game of Arms, uh, which I believe is on AMC. And it's a great show. Do you ever see that show, Bob? I have not seen that show. I, I, I don't watch. I, I don't watch TV, to be honest with you. The news, and that's it. You should watch this show because it's fun. You know, <laughs> it's about it's about these uh, teams of arm wrestlers throughout the country. And there's, you know, some from California, one from New York. Uh, I think there's one in uh, maybe Erie, Pennsylvania. And it's it's really real, which is kind of cool because these are real sort of blue-collar guys. They're school teachers. They're welders. They're construction people. And they also are wrestlers, arm wrestlers. And Alan Fisher is great because Alan Fisher's, um, you know, he's a little bit older than most of the, the young guys. He's been doing this since the, the 70s. And he and his wife have won so many championships. So he's really inspirational to a lot of the younger guys. Um, but we talked to him last time about motivation and, and positive thinking and leadership. And he gave a ton of good information, both he and his wife. It was a really, really sort of inspirational show. And then we had a surprise call in from Cobra Rhodes, who is also an arm wrestler. Um, and it was just a really good show. And, 
So uh, we're excited to have them back on. They're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming season and then talk about motivation and you know what he did mentally to get prepared. Um, one thing that we talked about with, with Alan last time, which is, I think, interesting, Alan is he's a, a lighter weight guy. You know, he's tall, but he's really thin, but super, super strong. And he can, you know, win these these arm wrestling championships against these guys that outweigh him by two or three times. But he's always practicing like he's always got something in his hands and he's always squeezing it. And so uh, it's just interesting about his work ethic. So we're going to talk to him about that and how that can apply to business. So that's this Thursday. Um but, you know, like I said, don't forget, make sure you go back and download Amy Applebaum's show. That was very uh, informative. I think we got a lot of good feedback from it. So, but you should watch Game of Arms, Bob. Just, just check it out. It's kind of fun. <laughs> I, you know, I'll have to, uh, next time I go on vacation, uh, hit a hotel room or somewhere I have access to it, I'll check it out. Because generally, anyone wrestling conscience, that's that's a different, uh, I'm into that. <laughs> And in all honesty, uh, anyone that's done anything as as long and as sex, uh, successfully as Alan has definitely has some things you could learn from. Yeah, definitely. He's a really nice guy too, which is hard to come by in this uh, in today's world, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Not a lot of nice guys out there. Everyone's yeah. out for themselves. Just look at you Maine. Speaking of of nice mm-hmm. guys, right? I saw this morning, and we're not going to talk about it today too much, but I saw this morning this this interesting story. Um, that movie with Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper. Um, yeah, American Hustle. Yes, yes. So the Absolutely. guy, yeah, yeah, the guy who had, I guess, back in the seventies, commented about microwave technology, is now suing the movie. Because in one scene, and I didn't see the movie, but I did see the scene this morning, where Jennifer Lawrence is standing in front of the microwave, and the microwave catches on fire, and she's talking yeah. about the fact that you know microwaves remove all nutritional value from food. This guy who actually did write articles and um, has had a lot to say over the years about microwave technology is now he's suing them for defamation. And saying that he never said that uh, microwaves remove all nutritional value from food. So he's suing them because of this statement. He wants, get this, he wants them to go back and remove his name from all the movies. movies. (laughs) That's a recall. Maybe get the automotive companies involved in that. They're good at that. But this is this is you're talking about not nice people. This guy, I don't know how old he is. He's got to be up there in age, and you know now he's all up in arms. And it's funny because when I was watching the news, my wife says to me, "Well, this is the first time I've heard of this guy." So this guy should be thanking American Hustle for bringing him any sort of notoriety um, because <laughs> he's become completely obsolete. Yet uh, it's a case you know we should probably look at because it's interesting, and we'll see where it goes. So. We'll make a note of that and, and, and see how that develops. But um, it's certainly an interesting case. I think that, you know, they were saying today he's got some potential merit to the claim just based upon the fact that the statements that they made in the movies, in the movie, were they were, they were false. I mean, he never said that. That's, that's an actual fact. And he did not say anything about it being devoid of nutritional value. But 
what are his damages and what's the detriment you know to him. So we'll look at that. Uh, maybe we'll look at that next week. Yeah, I would think if it were an actual documentary on 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 the the, the whole situation with Abscam, that would make sense. But it's a movie. Give him some poetic license. You know, I'm sure that nobody stands around and quotes everybody every day, word for word. Uh, Jeez. Yeah, really? <laughs> really? It's funny. Oh, well. That goes. <laughs> On the more pressing matters, the, the, the stuff we will talk about today. It was, it was kind of funny as I went through everything. There's a lot of, um, you know, some current stuff, but then we also have a little follow-up that we've been uh, – keeping an eye on as well lately and we'll get to that uh, later on in the show but we'll kick it off with ebola everyone's afraid of ebola and i don't know what it is with connecticut and their schools but they keep getting hit hard with things that scare them ebola scare is hitting connecticut third graders hartford connecticut according to courthousenews.com fears and myths about ebola are keeping a third grader just back from a wedding in nigeria out of school in milford connecticut she is claiming in federal court um ikealua Opayemi <laughs> filed the suit through her father, Stephen. Yeah, what's that? That was real good. Say it one more time. <laughs> Aikilua Opayemi uh, filed <laughs> five times real fast. <laughs> filed suit through her father, Stephen, on Tuesday, claiming that Milford and its school system will not allow her to return to Meadowside Elementary School until November 3rd. Milford instituted a 21-day ban on the girl because she and her father were in Lagos, Nigeria, for a family wedding between October 2nd and the 13th, according to the complaint. The Opiamis say that the school's actions are based on fears related to the outbreak of Ebola in countries of Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, West Africa. You're right, it is. Uh, Milford's health department and its school superintendent, Elizabeth Fesser decided to ban the seven-year-old, even though she has not been diagnosed with Ebola and has not exhibited any of the symptoms of Ebola, according to the complaint. The defendants also have uh, allegedly refused offers by the Opiemis to screen them. In a letter to the Opiemis, Fesser explained that, while we understand your position and that there is no health risk at this time, my concern is with the protection and well-being of the entire school community, including your daughter. Milford's public health director, Dr. Dennis McBride, allegedly told the Opiemis the day after they returned from their trip that Ikalua, I've lost the pronunciation on that, Ikalua should not attend school. The little girl shouldn't go. The Opiemis, I'm going to stick with that word, uh, the young Opiemi. The Opiemis, meanwhile, point out that Nigeria is several hundred miles away from the three countries where the Ebola outbreak has occurred, and they have no new Ebola cases in Nigeria since October, or excuse me, August 31st, according to the complaint. On October 20th, the WHO, World Health Organization, stated that Nigeria was officially free of Ebola. No, Ebola isn't free. It's free of Ebola. WHO country director Rui Gamavaz called the country's containment of the disease a spectacular success story. Now, the Opiemis want permission to return the young Opiemi to class and compensation, of course, for the emotional trauma that she has suffered as a result. Now, the, the crux of the matter is, according to the suit, Milford and its school system are accused of violating Title II of the Americans with Disability Act, which provides that, quote, in determining whether an individual poses a direct threat to the health or safety of others, a public entity must make an individualized assessment based on reasonable judgment that relies on current medical knowledge or on the best available objective evidence to ascertain the nature, excuse me, the nature, duration, and severity of the risk. 
the probability that the potential injury will occur or actually occur, and whether reasonable modification of policies, practices, and procedures or the provision of auxiliary aids or services will mitigate the risk. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess the thing is with this, and I get, you know, is this main case going to weigh in as a precedent here, Steve, or, uh, Peter? You know, I, I think it's different. You know, you're talking about the crazy nurse in Maine who doesn't want to follow any rules. You know, um, I am. She's the most important person around. Yeah, her her issue is going to be, I think, with respect to to the New Jersey action that she had planned on filing, which you know has not happened yet. Uh, it's right. going to be based upon the the conditions that she was placed in. So you know, it wasn't a five star hotel accommodation. It was a tent, and I had to, you know crap in a pot. I think that that's where she's going to have some sort of of potential um, for a suit. But this these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at what the American with Disabilities Act says, you know, it, it, you know, you read it right. It's it's exactly what it said, and you're going to look at the objective evidence to determine what the the possible risk is. And you know, you've got this whole Ebola scare, and now you're over there in that area. And the fact that Nigeria has contained it really does nothing to make me feel safe. And and now you, <laughs> exactly. you know. What kind of emotional trauma is it? You can't go to school for 21 days. Most kids would be like, oh, my God, having to go back. Oh, no, days, that's the emotional trauma. It's for her parents' emotion. It's for her parents' emotional trauma. Well, I can see that. I guess if you've got the kid for 21 days and you can't even pronounce her name, it probably is traumatic. Akilua. Then we're just going to call her uh, Ike because I can't do any better than that. Ike. Ike. Um you know, and, and something you stated, actually, you know, you talk about, you know, coming from Nigeria and the fact that it's not, you know, that doesn't make anyone feel any easier. I think, you know, this is, again, the needs of the few outweighing the needs of the many. And so great this girl isn't exhibiting any signs right now. What happens when they're sitting in a circle at school while the teacher's reading a book, she starts to exhibit symbols or signs and, and vomits all over everybody? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's that's the thing. You know, when do you want to quarantine these people? After they've exhibited sure. symptoms? Is that the best time to do it? That's the whole point of this 21-day quarantine. Because, you're yeah. trying, you know, the, the, the disease can can lay dormant for that 21-day incubation period. And then the next thing you know, like you said, you know, you've got you've got the walking dead on your hands because you're you're throwing up in the middle of preschool or, 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 or class. It's ridiculous. But if your yeah. child went to school, what would you do? I would keep my kid home. No way would I. If I knew that there yeah. was a kid there from Nigeria, you know, just no way. I'm not going to take a chance. And 80% of parents probably would do the same thing, just throwing the 80-20 rule on there. And so what's going to happen is the entire school will shut down because they're not going to have their minimum attendance met. Yeah. So they're just going to shut the school down anyway. Yeah. And, and you know, why should we give these people money? This is the thing that just blows my mind. Everybody thinks about, oh, you know, look, it's fair and, and, and what's right. Oh, come on. Really? I mean, here, I'll, yeah. give you, I'll give you some free advice. Don't go to a wedding in Nigeria. How about that? <laughs> it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity <laughs> to get Ebola and die. I'll send a card. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and you wonder, you wonder how disease can still spread the way that it did at the time of the bubonic plague. 
you know, they didn't have the knowledge or information or ability to sort of prevent it. But here everyone's paranoid and scared about Ebola as a growing concern. And you've got all these people in the world that are saying, screw you. I, I've been in contact with people. I don't feel sick. I'm not going to stay away. I'm coming out to play, and you're going to have to play with me. And you know what? I want some money for it, too, because I don't think I was treated fairly. Yeah, yeah. That's ridiculous. Uh, it's, it's, it, it is ridiculous. But, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested that, like you said, there, you don't think there's going to be any difference or that's not going to really apply here because it's a little different situation So yeah, uh, versus think- the, the, main, the main nurse. That's right. Good good luck to the Ikeas because they're not getting any money. <laughs> there you go. Let's hope not. Um, well, if you do get Ebola, heaven forbid, don't go to your doctor in Nova Scotia to get a note to stay out of work. Nova Scotia doctor to start charging employers for sick notes. According to CBCNews.com, Nova Scotia physician Ethel Cooper Rosen is going to start charging employers $30 for sick notes, saying they put unnecessary pressure on the healthcare system and expose other patients in her waiting room to viruses. Makes sense. Many employers and some universities require notes from doctors to verify that sick day policies aren't being abused. The Dartmouth physician objects to pa- excuse me, patients coming into her office for the sole purpose of getting sick notes. She says that we feel that this is inappropriate. Doctors Nova Scotia feel that this is definitely something they don't want to continue doing. Patients who have mild viral illnesses and have no reason to see the doctor because really the treatment of these illnesses is to stay at home and rest. They're taking the position that it's an unnecessary medical visit, taking up our time, exposing patients in the waiting room to illnesses, and it shouldn't be part of the system. Cooper Rosen says she gets three to five requests for a doctor's note a week when she's working in an urgent uh, duty clinic. Doctor's notes are not covered by medical services insurance. She said it's standard procedure to charge third-party organizations for non-medical services. Why not this? In a note to employers explaining the $30 invoice, Cooper Rosen asks them to revisit their absentee policy. She said many patients with viral illnesses wouldn't even come to her office if their employee didn't, or if their employer didn't require a note anyway. If an employee said they're sick, their employer should probably just trust them, she says. They're telling the truth, maybe, and that if they have a good relationship with them, it'll be okay. The patient doesn't want to pay for the note, and the employer generally doesn't want to pay for the note either. In 2013, it's interesting to note, though, that the average Nova Scotian took eight and a half sick days, more than the national average of 7.4 days. I don't, I don't take any days, Peter. <laughs> it's, I have to be pretty sick not to go to work, and I don't even want to go to the doctor's office. Matter of fact, I think the last time I took a day off work, I was operated on. Yeah, you know, I look, if I'm sick and, and I think that I'm going to be contagious and other people are going to get it, I'll stay home, but right. I'll work home or whatever. But um, I, I don't know. Look, I, I don't even know what to say about this because while I respect physicians completely, right, when somebody mm-hmm. comes to our office and they've got an appointment at 2 o'clock and, um, you know, we're on the phone and tied up, we make sure that somebody's out there to seat them, to talk to them at 2 o'clock because that's when their appointment is. And if we're one minute late, people are griping. Whoa, I was, I've been here for a minute. <laughs> yes, but we give you free coffee and candy. You know, that doesn't make a difference. Doctor's office, you go in, and it's a full-day event. Let's, you know, oh. let's go for my 2 o'clock appointment, and maybe I'll be seen by 4. And you're not allowed to say anything. You just have to sit there. And, the, and then yes. they want to, you know. I, and I, look, I, I've got a lot of friends that, that are in the medical field, people that I respect, and they're doctors. 
And there's this argument about what insurance pays. And obviously this is Canada, so it's slightly different. But I think that um, any employer that's going to say, you know what, this doctor, she's got the right idea. I'm just going to trust the people that work here. I'm going to make, I'm going to trust them. (laughs) All right, guys, no more sick note policy. You know, where do you think that's going to go? No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a little pushback, and I'm curious as to, I mean, we're moving, I don't say we're moving to a single-payer system, because we're certainly not, but we're moving to a system where everyone's going to have insurance, and pretty soon, the next step here, our doctors aren't dumb. They're going to continue to do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I just need to know I'm sick. I need a note. <laughs> well, no. And insurance companies, they'll start kicking back as well. Why'd you see this person? Well, it yeah. says here the employer sent them there. Well, guess what? I'm going to kick it back to the employer and make them pay for it. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. They're always, like, I think you had said it, you're, you know, insurance companies, their first action is to deny, deny, deny. Yeah. Yeah. They, that, you know, that, they don't want to pay any more than they want to. No, they're betting on you being, you know, healthier because they're going to make you pay a, a large premium every month. And they're hoping that you don't get sick. And if you do get sick, good luck trying to get reimbursed for that. But, you know, look. Even my kids, right, and even though I'm really fond of the pediatric group that we go to, they want to play basketball this uh, this season in grammar school, and we've got mm-hmm. to spend $35 per kid to have them fill out a one-page assessment form that says there's no major medical conditions that will prevent them from playing <laughs> basketball. And I, here's your, please I, fill out the self-assessment, and here's your bill for doing so. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't understand it. And, you know, I don't have to go to the office because they, they've, they've modernized enough that they actually have a fax machine. So I can fax to them these forms. They can send them, you know, fill them out, and then I, obviously I'll have to go pick them up with my check. But really, I mean, we're $70 to fill out two pieces of paper? I don't know. I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> we're in the wrong business. Yeah. <laughs> Doctors can argue all yes, the time. How the insurance company doesn't pay them, and but you know I've seen some of these bills that I've, I've, I've you know anybody in my family has encountered. You know when when Luke had his pacemaker replaced, the bill was over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And while oh man, you know it scares the crap out of me as his father. The actual procedure, because this was a minor replacement as opposed to replacing all the the wires, the the whole replacement took about thirty five minutes. And it's just a ridiculous amount of money. But, you know, well, I, I don't know. You know don't go to an open scholarship. <laughs> don't get sick and don't ask this person for a doctor's note. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just go to work. <laughs> <laughs> just go to work. Spread the Ebola and, and don't worry about it. You'll all be dead soon. Anyway. Sorry, Jack. He's going to be out of work today. He has Ebola. Um, well, that might be not so bad because at least we know there's a cure for it. But the thumbless machinist... May sue a manufacturer of a machine, a global manufacturer whose solder machine mostly tore off a circuit board assembler's two thumbs may be held liable, a federal judge has ruled. Mary Hedinger has worked as a circuit board assembler at K-Tron Electronics in Pittman, New Jersey, for over 20 years when the accident occurred during a night shift on September 29th of 2011. While shutting down the Econopac Plus Wave solder machine that night, Hedinger stood near the factory wall behind the molten solder pot, waiting for it to automatically roll out the back of the back of the machine toward her. So she's done for over a decade. It's not a problem. Hanniger says she is holding the canvas, the thermal blanket used to cover the pot before the operator begins 
to uh, it back into the machine when the machine spindled out and caught the fabric, sucking it back on the rotating roll-out shaft or spindle. She then really pulled really hard to remove her hands from the canvas and heard a popping noise. After Oof. removing her hands from the canvas, she saw that the top of her right thumb was coming off and her left thumb had been severed. <sighs> Who has two thumbs and likes soldering? Not this gal. Hedinger sued the machine's designer, Speedline Technology Incorporated, and others in Camden, but Speedline has challenged the case, challenging her description of the accident based on her purported memory lapses. Unable to remember how the incident occurred, Hedinger does not actually know if the blanket got caught on the smooth, unthreaded shaft, Speedline told the court. Well, Hedinger arguing that the shaft was not smooth, unthreaded, and cylindrical, but rusty with a hexagonal head on the end, as demonstrated by photographs. Indeed, while designing the machine, Speedline admittedly did not test the spindle for risk of entanglement, and the manual has no warnings about the rollout shaft or instructions on how to apply the canvas to the pot, let alone when to replace old blankets. An investigation by OSHA found that the employer should have guarded the metal rotating bar at the rear of the machine. So they're OSHA found against the employer, actually, not even against the machine manufacturer. Right. U.S. Thumbs District Judge, what's that? Thumbs down to them. <laughs> yes, very much so. Uh, the U.S. District Judge Renee Bum declined to exclude Batterman's testimony Wednesday, and she refused the, the uh, defendant partial summary judgment. Though Speedline had said that the failure to warn claim fails because the alleged risk was open and obvious, Hattinger argued that it was not the high solder that injured her. Instead, it was the exposed rollout shaft in the application of the thermal blanket. According to the ruling, the court rejected Speedline's claim that Hedinger has no memory of what occurred, stating that the plaintiff's testimony speaks to the issue of causation, Bum wrote. To the extent defendant maintains that her recollection is not credible, any credibility issues are approximate or appropriately resolved by a jury. Um, this is one of those workplace safety things, man, that you either see coming or you don't come and see coming, and, and I'm sure you have Story upon story. I do, and I have a good one that I'm going to give you in a few minutes. It's really good. But before we get to that, you know. Um, I don't want to thumb my nose. No, absolutely, right? And and I'm not going to waste too much time. I'm going to get that thumb out of my ass, and I'm going to, I'm going to carry on with this story. Um, there you go. <laughs> it's a long one. So, so here's, here's the deal with this. I think that um, the manufacturer is definitely going to have liability here. And the fact that she doesn't remember... Um, through circumstantial evidence, the photographs of the machinery and where she it's not like she was operating the machine, ran outside, you know, slammed her fingers in the car door, came back, and maybe it was the car door slamming that could have caused this. There's enough circumstantial evidence that, that's going to show that um, they should have done something else with the machinery. I'm sure this case will settle. I don't think this is going to go to trial. The denial of partial summary judgment also is sort of like a, a red flag warning sign for the manufacturer to say, all right, we better start talking about settlement. And then you got to look at mm-hmm. the value of thumbs, you know. Um, I mean, monkeys are great because they've got opposable thumbs, right? That's yeah, what we yeah, there you go. Right? What are you going to do with no thumbs? I mean, I mean just imagine, just, I can't even, you're going to eat with no thumbs. You're going to, well, I, I guess you can still pick your nose, but I don't know what else you can do without thumbs, right? You're not going to get a ride anywhere. No way. So, well, I'm gonna, but I'm going to share my story with you because this is a great story. Yeah. And this is absolutely true. So a number of years ago, I had a case where I was defending the school board. And there's a shop class, and there was an instructor in the shop class, and the class probably had 30 kids in it. 
And, um, and this is high school. So the shop teacher would sort of walk around. He'd give everybody a project to do, walk around the room to make sure everybody was using the equipment right. There was a safety test given at the beginning of the year. You know, don't do this, don't do that. So I'm going to give you this scenario, and you tell me how you think it plays out. So the beginning of the year, he gives a test. He spends the first three months of the year telling people how to use each piece of equipment. And then you take this test, and if you pass the test, then you can start using it. So now you're like in December, and you're working on your first project. So the teacher is at the front of the class talking to another student, the rule is you have to ask permission to use the tools before you go use them. A girl walks in front of the podium where he's talking to another student and says, allegedly, I'm going to go use the circular saw. She believes she sees a nod and goes over. She runs wood through the circular saw. And for those of you who don't know, a circular saw, it's a table saw, right? So the table saw, the blade spins forward, and there's a blade guard that covers the rotating blade. So in this case, there was no blade guard. It had been removed. Sometimes real woodworkers will remove the blade guard because you need to be able to get a really, really fine cut on the table saw. But for the most most people, most general users, you need to have the blade guard on. Long story short, she makes the cut, slides it through, perfect cut, on her way to making this outstanding birdhouse, and she, she goes to clear a scrap of wood that is stuck behind the rotating blade. She puts her fingers behind it, and what do you think happens? The forward-facing oh. rotating blade cuts off three of her fingers. Okay? So she says that the failure to have the blade guard is, is the issue here and that there was no supervision. The teacher says, I gave you three months of instruction – one of the rules was never, ever, ever operate this equipment without a blade guard. Never, ever, ever try to clear scrap away. And you didn't ask my permission. So where do you think that, that falls? What do you think happens? My first, my first question is, how long ago was it? Uh, for five years ago. Okay, then it's in, definitely in the new world of no accountability. I'll say the school's at fault because they didn't ensure that the guard was on. Yep. That's basically, Not that I agree with that, but that's how I found it. Yep, that's that's what it came out to. You came down to, and there was a settlement, and uh, the settlement was relatively large. It was almost a million dollars for three fingers. But the wow. best was it her writing hand? It was. It was. It was her writing hand. She was left-handed, so there was this whole big play about you know I can't get married. I'm not going to have a wedding ring because her fingers had some of them had been sewn uh-huh. off. Were all messed up. I felt sorry for the kid, but the best sure. part of the story is this. So right before the accident happens, there's a student in the class that goes up to the teacher, and this student was being really annoying. So she kept saying to the teacher, when are you going to pay attention to me? i got to do this. I want to do this. Can you help me make this cut? Can you do this? Why won't you pay attention? He says to her, I can't deal with you. You're going to go to the principal's office. You've got to stop. But for right now, go stand out in the hallway. So she's standing out in the hallway in front of the open door. And as the girl makes the cut, one of her fingers goes flying out the room and hits, hits the girl on the forehead. <laughs> Bang, another lawsuit. <laughs> and that was the last time she was ever asked the teacher. 
She got the wow. Yeah, that's unfortunate, but uh, and, but it, and that's and that's one of those things where I don't want to say it's 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 predictable that something's going to happen, but you know when you take that blade guard off, something opens you up to exposure. In this situation, this is just a matter of time that no one I don't say no one would have thought of. But like you said, there's going to be a degree of responsibility on the manufacturer. Yeah, and I think that the OSHA report's, you know, relatively important because, I mean, obviously OSHA always says that there was lack of this or lack of that. But in this case, there could have been something that might have been able to be done that could have prevented this. So I think it's going to be relevant, and I think that they're going to have to, to, to pay something. We'll give her Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, the day I don't have any Rolling Stones queued up. Um, well, <laughs> there's always a workplace hazard, whether it's losing thumbs in machinery or losing your dignity in the mayor's office. So workers claiming the mayor town in Newark, New Jersey, forced sex upon her. I don't know what happened in New Jersey again today. Things are going crazy. The wheels are off the buggy. Thumbs are off the hands. The newly elected mayor of Irvington, New Jersey, allegedly, allegedly, forced a worker to have sex with him in her office, she is claiming in court. Tamara Smith sued the township of Irvington and Mayor Anthony Voss on October 20th in Essex County Court. Smith, who has worked for Irvington since 2004 in the township's Department of Public Works, claims that Voss's harassing conduct started before he became mayor. She was, says he told her in August of 2013 that we have to find a way to get you some more money. I want you to work I want you to work inside with me. You know I want you. You be my girl on the side. <laughs> End quote. According to the complaint, Smith claims that Voss has verbally, uh, her, uh, has verbally harassed her on numerous occasions in the past. Now, Smith says that Voss took his behavior beha- beyond comments on June 9th of this past year when he told her in her office, I'll change your job title and make you a supervisor, he's told her, apparently, or allegedly. After this come on, Smith says, Voss walked behind her, and she told him no again. Defendant Voss then wrapped his arms around her waist and grabbed her belt, realizing that Defendant Voss, as mayor-elect, was trying to what he was trying to do. Plaintiff again told him no. Smith says that Voss then pressed his body against Plaintiff so that she was wedged against her desk, then loosened her belt, pulled down her pants, and began to penetrate her. As he did so, she, he reached inside her shirt and grabbed one of her top sides, and then stopped for a bit and masturbated while squeezing the plaintiff's buttocks and then penetrated her again, yada, yada, yada. Shocked and scared, plaintiff froze and said nothing as he touched and penetrated her. Now, Smith says that despite her distress and request that he stop, she was powerless because of Voss's power as her supervisor, his position as a mayoral candidate, and then as mayor-elect. So that's the whole process of her employment supervisor position as candidate and mayor-elect, as well as defendant's township's failure to enforce an effective anti-harassment policy. Voss did not return requests for comments to uh, the uh, courthousenews.com folks. Smith seeks punitive damages for discrimination, hostile work environment, and quid pro quo sexual harassment. My One thing that she never mentioned in the complaint was that she had reported it. I'm not justifying it. I'm not giving it any kind of negative light but she never said she reported it yeah but i think that the the egregious nature of this i think that you know sure. she's got herself a good case but this highlights the importance oh, of having thumbs 
Let me explain this. When someone <laughs> is behind you, a, a martial arts technique, right, in order to break yeah. free of is to jab your thumbs into their eye sockets. If you have no thumbs, there's nothing to jab into the eye sockets. You there you go. Another just uh, you add another hundred thousand dollars to that other case. Way to go. Yep. Yep. Because now go all day like this. It, yeah. There's just no. She's got no thumbs. So anyway, yes. um, isn't there a begging strips commercial with a dog who's giving my begging strips or something? Right. Rich. I had thumbs. Yes, I wish I had thumbs. Yes. I could right. open the bag. Oh, I wish I had thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting sued. <laughs> um, I'm glad you're a lawyer. you got to have a little of it. Um, yes, you do. You absolutely have to. Yes. I think this, in all seriousness, um, I, you know, this is, this is a bad thing. You know, quid pro quo, by the way, people don't often know what that means. Quid pro quo. Mm-hmm. Uh, sexual harassment. That's something in exchange for sexual favors. So, quid pro quo, where somebody says, "I'm going to make you a supervisor if you supervise my genitals," that is something for you know a sexual favor. I think this woman probably has a very good case. I think that um, if any of this is is you know construed as as the truth, um, you know she's going to have herself a decent case. The problem with with these cases is that they're often always left up to a jury because it, it's really a fact determination. Do you believe what this person is saying? Uh, only right. in those situations where there's cameras or um, you know, some sort of body fluid or something that you could test and say, look, conclusively. Uh, oftentimes it's, it's, it's one word against another. And your point about no complaints is, is an interesting and important one because Let's assume that she had never complained about this in the past, ever. Now you've got one act. For 10 years. Right, and now you're going to have a jury having to decide, did this really happen the way that she said it happened? And were there any other intervening factors that might have made her make up this story? And that's not to say it didn't happen, but that's the kind Mm -hmm. of thought process that's going to go through a juror's mind. You know, why didn't she report this? Because... You know, that, that question you raise is what the average person is going to think. I don't understand. Why didn't she do anything? Why didn't she say anything? What sort of responsibility should the employer have when they don't know that this is going on? You know, and that gets into a legal area where we talk about, you know, even if it's not reported, the, there has to be a policy against this sort of thing and on and on. But that's why these cases are tough. and They're you know going to go the distance, I think, with, with cases like this. Because you don't know, is she telling the truth, or is she not? Yeah, it is going to become a, a definitely a uh, um, he said, she said, and you know how do you how do you prove something like this? That's the big. It's, you know, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with this, honestly, because if there were ever witnesses to it, then she has obviously some ground to stand on. But um, if if it's he said, she said, what happens? It's going to be tough, and it's going to be after you know months and months of depositions and testimony, and ultimately, when you've got a he said, she said, and there's really no other determining factor, it becomes a, a, a back-to-high-school popularity contest. Who does the jury like more? Who do they believe more? Sure. And that's really what, what it comes down to. And that's not justice. That's just, that's just you know high school politics. And, and yeah, an overriding factor is if, if you know if you're listening and you're ever ever harassed, 
you have to say something. You have to do what you, you know, you may, unfortunately, you may encounter the negative side of that um, uh, statement. You know, you may put yourself out for exposure to be fired. Now it gets bigger. You know, you're, you're, you blew the whistle on somebody. Now you get fired. It's going to grow from there. I think it's, 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 you know, it's not the seventies anymore. I think that, um, you know, we're 30, 40 years around long. It's not that it doesn't happen, but companies are more, um, I guess, in tune with the fact that they have to take care of something or it's going to get ugly. And yeah. Valleys, you, know, I hope as well. you mentioned whistleblowing and, and there's a law it's called SEPA, the conscientious employment protection act that protects people who blow the whistle. So even if it's you, if right. you're a victim here, and you're going to go to a supervisor and say, guess what, this guy's harassing me, or you're going to go to some other official, because like in this case, it's the mayor, but there's other people that you could go to, and you say, here's what's going on. If you get fired because of that, because it's retaliatory, because it's a whistleblower, you can file a claim under SEPA, and you can potentially recover even more money. So your advice yeah. is is absolutely spot on. If you are harassed or feel uncomfortable, go do something. Go say something about it. It'll help you and help Somebody. your patient. Yeah. You know, and even even in small companies where there's not an HR, I don't say a policy, but um, you know, if you're a small employer and you you're basically being harassed by the boss because you have no place else to go, you can't go over that person's head. I would think would it be advisable to get some outside help in, in the form of an attorney? Yeah, it absolutely would. And you know what? It's interesting because most um, employment manuals, right, there's got to be somebody that you can go to aside from your direct boss. So if you're in a small business and you're working for one person and you feel harassed and there is nobody else to go to, in theory, you might even be able to make out a claim that says, you know, your handbook says that if you feel that you're being harassed, go to management. But what if management is the harasser? Right, then you right, have an expanded claim. So what do you do about it? And you do exactly what you just said, Bob. You go and you get okay. an attorney. You know, if it's something that you feel that you're physically uh, at risk, I would even consider going to the police. But an attorney is definitely the way to go. I just wonder if there's no sort of, you know, way that an employer can be protected from the harassment of his employees. <laughs> Great way to look at it. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm only guessing you're speaking from experience. <laughs> no, I, I say nothing. <laughs> I say I know nothing. Uh, yeah, I, I, what's, what's tough is when you have split personality like myself and you work for yourself. So I hate working with that guy. Yeah, you have a hard time suing him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Take it for all he's worth. Oh, you know, you keep hearing, you know, and, and I don't even want to get into the point where, you know, it's been in the news forever and it's going to be in the news in the next couple of weeks. I expect from the leaks that are out there with Ferguson, Missouri, um, the town is going to burn if there's not an indictment. But it's not the only place in America where problems are happening um, racially or, or not motivated um, when it comes to police. According to CourthouseNews.com, cops who fired 22 times at a man weren't excessive. And this mirrors a case here in, in Michigan and Saginaw as well. Uh, Martinsburg, West Virginia, police officers who shot a homeless schizophrenic man 22 times after he stabbed one of them did not use excessive force, a federal judge has ruled. This is kind of a, an, an, kind of a, a tedious case. According to Robert and Bruce Jones, administrators for the estate of Wayne Jones, their brother, who was 
apparently walking down Queen Street in Martinsburg on March 13th of 2013 when Officer Paul Lehman encountered him. Jones was walking in the street rather than on the sidewalk, sound familiar, and he, after he'd gone about a block, Officer Lehman saw, stopped him on the grounds that a local ordinance prohibits a pedestrian from walking in the street when a sidewalk is available. A video recorded from Lehman's police car showed Jones seemingly to cooperate as he interacted with the officer. Robert Jones later said in a disposition that his brother Wayne suffered from schizophrenia and was homeless, but the average person coming across him would not likely realize he had a mental issue. Now, Lehman radioed for backup once when he discovered that the possibility Jones had a weapon on him. Officer Daniel North said that by the time he arrived on the scene, Jones and Lehman appeared to be having an argument. As it escalated, Lehman used his taser on Jones, but apparently had no effect, according to the officers. North deployed his taser as well and again had minimal effect. Both officers said that a moment later, Jones struck Lehman and took off running down the street for a bookstore. Lehman immediately ran after him. North called for additional backup. Robert Bruce Jones say that once at the bookstore, North got into a confrontation with Wayne once again, as did another officer, William Staub, who had just arrived at the scene. During an ongoing struggle at the bookstore, Jones stabbed Officer Staub in the side with a knife. Officers ordered Jones to drop the knife. When he didn't, the plaintiffs say the officers opened fire. According to the video from Officer Neely's dashboard cam, the shots lasted approximately two seconds and were fired almost simultaneously, the plaintiffs say. The officers fired 22 shots at Jones, all which struck him. After the shooting ended, Officer Neely radioed that shots had been fired and requested emergency personnel, and he unfortunately died at the scene. Now, in October 2013, the grand jury declined to indict the officers who were then allowed, you know, obviously to return to work because they were off on leave, as generally happens after a shooting. The Jones brothers then sued the Martinsburg Police Department and the officers, identified only as Doe's 1 through 25, on June 13th of 2013, asserting wrongful death and negligence claims. Now, in August of 2013, two months later, the claims against the department were dismissed. Brothers asked for and granted permission to amend their complaint, and at that time they inserted the names of the officers and defendants, and that the city of Martinsburg was liable for its officers' alleged constitutional violations. The defendants moved for a summary judgment, and on October 15th of this year, U.S. District Judge Gina Gross sided with the defendants, dismissing the action with prejudice and ordering that the case be stricken from the active document, or excuse me, active docket. In her ruling, she noted several inconsistencies in the arguments posed by the plaintiff's estate. Now, Here's the problem. In arguing that the officers used excessive force, the estate stressed the point that the officers fired 22 shots at Jones. Now, because they were all fired simultaneously is the issue. The Fourth Court has instructed, Fourth Circuit, excuse me, however, that the number of shots fired is not determinative as to whether the force used was reasonable. Gross seeing that, indeed, in a case um, that uses a precedent, the Fourth Circuit upheld the firing of the same amount of shots that the officers fired at Jones. In reaching that conclusion, the Fourth Circuit focused on the near-simultaneous natures of the shot, not how many, the fact that the officers did not empty their guns, and the short duration of the shooting. There is also no indication that in those few seconds any officer saw Jones drop the knife such that he would no longer pose a threat. Um, ex- very similar case happened in Michigan a couple of years ago. Um, Milton Hall. Does that name ring a bell at all, Peter? No. Um, eight or nine police showed up to an individual with a knife and ordered him to drop the knife. He became uh, made aggressive moves at the police, and they basically gunned him down in broad daylight. It was it was pretty ugly. 
Right. Um, but the fact of the matter is, similar to this, who makes the call to start shooting? And who says, okay, you, you get to shoot. Not everyone's going to shoot. Only you get to shoot, and we'll see how you do. Yeah. Yeah, you know, these, these cases are, are tough because when you look at what happened, you know, and you look at the guy being schizophrenic and you think, well, maybe you shouldn't have uh, let it get to that point. Well, you know, generally I'm not uh, big on defending the police. I think that in certain circumstances, you know, because they are people, and so you put yourself in, in a home invasion setting, um, and if you had a gun and you had somebody in the house, at least if I did, I would empty that clip, and I don't care how many times I shot the person, because there's adrenaline and fear and all sorts of other emotions that take over. And if I am faced with a, a situation where I'm at risk, you're going to react. So I think there's some of that with police officers, and you could certainly say, well, they have uh, obviously have more training than, than the average homeowner would have. Sure. Um, but, you know, I think that the question about the simultaneous firing is also relevant because, you know, you've got somebody who is resisting and has stabbed an officer. So there is more of a threat. Um, I, I don't know. I think that, um, you know, it, it's it's tough because you could certainly say that it's reasonable but then you could also see the family's position. And, you know, what you don't think about is, is did they really need to taser him to begin with? I mean, look, not that it's right. right, but playing devil's advocate for a minute, you know, maybe the guy was pissed to get tasered. And maybe he was going to comply or maybe he was, I mean, he obviously had a mental disorder. So, uh, you know, maybe that sort of enraged him. And maybe he felt threatened and struck out at them in self-defense, because obviously you're dealing with uh, a schizophrenic mind. So to right. what extent does that play into it? And that we'll never know. So I think that what you're left with is the court looking at what's reasonable under the circumstances and then applying all of those immunities that we've talked about in the past to the police and saying, did you act with gross negligence? And, and no, because there was a threat. So it is conceivable that you were all in fear and that you all pulled your guns and, you know, you wanted to make sure that he wasn't getting up, so you fired 22 shots. I don't know. But, yeah, and I can Milton see, Hall was 46 shots, yeah. Yeah, it's, it seems to be excessive because I just don't understand that. You, you shot him twice. He's not moving. Do you really need to continue? Mm-hmm. I, don't know. I mean, you take a lot from, from The Walking Dead when they shoot somebody in the head. They don't keep shooting. They want to save their ammo. One bullet does. <laughs> One bullet. <laughs> well, and that's and that's the problem. You know, shooting until that until the pose to the the threat is is no longer an issue. And you know, like you have four four or five cops on the scene. Everybody shoots four or five shots. Yeah. What you know, it, it basically becomes a pincushion at that point. And you know, it's it's it's. You know, it's, it's unfortunate because the, the, the fellow did have a, uh, a mental illness, um, but in the same response, the cops want to go home that night, too. And yeah. um, it's there's there's never a right answer there, and everyone will never be happy. And just like in Ferguson, Missouri, if, if, he's, if, if Officer um, Wilson is not indicted, that town will burn. Yeah, yep, absolutely. It, it will burn. 
Um, and on to a lighter note. <laughs> so the, the, the bottom line is the cops tell you to do something. Just do it. Fight, fight about it later with them. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't stand. Um, back into Jersey, NorthJersey.com telling us this is interesting because this fellow came to the University of Michigan to play football. Drew Bill Peppers, after a transfer from Don Bosco, a football star, mom told to leave a home rented from the coach's brother. When high school football standout Jabril Peppers jilted Don Bosco Prep by transferring to arch rival Paramus Catholic in 2012, he and his mother were ordered to vacate the apartment they were renting from the brother of a Don Bosco assistant coach. Peppers and his mother, Ivory Bryant, had lived in the apartment in Allendale for nearly two years ever since he entered Don Bosco as a promising freshman football player in 2010. The apartment had been arranged for them as a favor by the assistant coach, Stephen Carvelis. Bryant said in a court paper filed at the time of the eviction. Now, asked about the situation Tuesday, the head of the New Jersey SIAA, I'm assuming Scholastic, what's the MJSIAA stand for, Peter? Uh, New Jersey State Inter-something Athletic Association. There you go, Interscholastic. I will with that. Yeah, you win. Uh, which governs high school athletics in New Jersey, said the organization will expand its investigations into possible recruiting violations at Don Bosco. No. Don Bosco and Paramus Catholic, two of North Jersey's top teams, have accused each other in recent weeks of improper recruiting practices. And Peppers, now a freshman at the U of M, University of Michigan, sent a text message to the Bergen Record saying that he had been recruited by Don Bosco, leading um, <laughs> one of the... Um, investigators to file a request for a report recruiting for high school teams, obviously generally banned by the organization. Now, Don Bosco principal, John Stanzik released a statement on October 16th saying an internal investigation concluded that the school followed all rules laid out in the association's constitution. The NJSIAA has yet to comment on that report. Court records obtained by the Bergen record show that Bryant Pepper's mother signed a lease on July 28th of 10 for an apartment in a house in Allendale, a few miles from Don Bosco's campus in Ramsey. Peppers and Bryant's moved, Bryant moved there from their home in Orange, about 30 miles away, just in time for Peppers to begin his freshman year at Don Bosco. Wow, coincidence. Michael Carvelis, who owned the property and is a home builder, also signed the lease. Now, <laughs> Michael Car- Carvelis uh, said Tuesday for his renting to Peppers and his mother had nothing to do with his brother. Or Don Bosco. Court records show that on February 9th, 2012, Peppers announced publicly that he was leaving Don Bosco and transferring to Paramus Catholic. On February 22nd, a mere two weeks later, Michael Carvella sent Bryant a notice terminating Tennessee tenancy note, which demanded they vacate the apartment because of a failure to pay a portion of the February rent as well as late fees for six months in 2011 and other charges. On March 7th, he filed an eviction notice and demanded $3,500 from Brian. On March 29th, the judge granted the eviction, but only awarded $1,300 one month's rent. Pepper and Bryant vacated the house by the end of the month. Now, go back to May 2012. The letter to the court, Bryant said, Michael Carvelis rented the apartment to me as a favor to his brother, Steve Carvelis, who was my son's football coach at Don Bosco Prep. She added, however, when I transferred my son out of Don Bosco in January 12th, Mr. Carvelis asked for his apartment and late fees. <laughs> this just keeps getting better and better and better. Now, now, the um, Carvelis is a home builder, 
in Allendale, and he said Tuesday the mother and son approached him about renting the apartment. They answered a sign that was posted on the property. It was advertised for rent. I rented it to her. I had a two-bedroom apartment that was for rent as well. So he added, she didn't pay me rent, which is why we went to court. She beat me out of my money. She still owes me. Now, later in the second letter filed in the court, she was told that she had lost her job and wanted permission to pay her rent in two installments each month. Whether he answered your requests, we're not clear from that record. This is a mess, and it's just not going to get any better. It's, it happens every day in every big town around America, probably even more so in Texas. Well, you want to hear something interesting? Absolutely. Well, I, I went to Don Bosco. That's where <laughs> I went. Yes. <clears throat> and I have to tell you, um, when I went to Don Bosco, Don Bosco is a, is a, is a Catholic school. It was run by the Salesian Brothers and it's been around forever. It's one of the leading schools in New Jersey for secondary education, for you know, high school. It has one of the top sports programs in the entire East, and they send a lot of people onto professional sports and that sort of thing. Oh, sure. So Don Bosco is a big name, big time school, and the the money at Don Bosco is absolutely insane. Now, I went to Don Bosco. I came from a very, very blue-collar family. We did not have a lot of money. There were kids that were pulling into that parking lot as juniors and seniors in Mercedes and Porsches, and, you know, that wasn't me. But I played sports. I played soccer, and I uh, I threw the javelin. I continued even into college throwing the javelin. I had become quite good. But if you're not sports-minded at a school like Don Bosco, there's really, look, you've got to either be super smart or you've got to be really athletic because those kids that are in the middle, they fall to the wayside in this school. And, you know, it's funny because I'm going to just rag on them a little bit because, you know, it's really something I think people don't know about. And my son now, he's a seventh grader, and he's going to be looking to go going to high school. And we don't know where we can send mm-hmm. him or forward. But he, they had all these Catholic schools come to his school, and Don Bosco was one of them. And um, he said to me, you know what, listen, I got this really cold feeling from Don Bosco. And when I said to them that I'm really not into sports, they kind of just you know shrugged and walked away. <laughs> and I tell you. That when I went to school, and this was years and years ago, they recruited students. They took kids that um, – look, I was on the soccer team, and you had to go try out for the soccer team. I was a goalie, and I was good. But they had recruited another goalie that they had been scouting since seventh grade in the, the rec league. And this was a well-known <laughs> fact. They brought in kids that were sort of um, poor from areas like Orange, and they brought them in to play football, they would scout these kids. And I don't care what they call it or what they say, they absolutely were scouting kids when I went to school, and they continue to do it today. And it's something that if you don't think it's happening, then you're not really living in today's world. Because you look at these schools, and they make a ton of money from their sports programs. The alumni... Oh, sure they do. Yeah, absolutely. They're not throwing money into the science club. They're throwing money into the football team. That's why mm-hmm. go to a school like Don mm-hmm. Bosco. You know, the tennis team, they're using rackets that they've all purchased themselves and, you know, uniforms that they have to pay for that look like they came from, you know, Jimmy Connors. 
And then you look at the football <laughs> team, and you could put the football team out on the field with any NFL team. And that's the sure. reality behind this. It is a money-driven industry, high school, especially Catholic education, because there's a lot of money going into it. So when I hear this story, and I know what I know about Don Bosco, I absolutely <laughs> believe that they screwed these people out. Because you know what? Oh, sure. Paramus is, is, is one of the main competitors. I think that they were number one in the state. And Don Bosco's always had a rivalry with, with anybody that was you know in the first three in the state. Because that's their bread and butter. That's where they get people to make donations. So absolutely can I see this happening. And in this instance, <laughs> I completely, whether I'm jaded or not, believe that this family was told, yes, come live here. And you know what's funny? Oh, sure. Nobody demanded the rent up until the time they left. Absolutely, yeah. No, there's a whole lot of circumstantial stuff. And that sounds like what the case is built on, mostly is circumstantial and whether or not it falls through. Yeah, and you know what, though? You're never going to be able to prove what really happened. No. I, I think it's going to be very difficult because these people that are are the coaches – you know, notice the coach didn't rent anything to him. It was the coach's brother who rented and the allegations right. in favor. And, you know, all they come back and say is, well, you didn't pay me and we had a lease and you didn't live up to your obligation, which is why the judge has to grant the eviction. But at the same time, you know, there are people out there in this world that, that are scammers and, you know, you don't have any sympathy for them. But then there are times when sure. you've got something like this that is coming from more of an inner city um locale to Allendale, which is a nicer Bergen County town, mm, you put them okay. up in a, a decent home. So, you know, you're taking them from more of an inner city, moving them to a nice rural community. Don Bosco is a ridiculously nice school as far as the grounds and the way that it looks. It looks like you're going to, you know, some sort of nice day spa rather than going to high school. <laughs> and so... Now, you know, the minute that you're not going to do for them, look, I'll tell you, when I was when I played soccer, there was a kid on the team, the kid was really super short, and nothing against people who are vertically challenged, because I myself am not six foot tall, but when you're playing sports, you've got to be able to, to, to fit the, the bill, right? Like, you, Scottie Pippen, mm -hmm. like, one out of a million who managed to make it onto the NBA team. Well, this kid was no good, and he was super short. When we played soccer, the ball seemed to be taller than he was. You know, as it rolled towards his feet, it would inevitably topple him over. But his father worked for the New Jersey Devils hockey team and made sure that the kids had tickets to all the games. So sure. that had value, and that you know, so I believe what these it, it, were... it, it, it. <laughs> little quid pro quo there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, these Catholic schools are going to start getting in trouble when they continue to um, court all these kids, and eventually some of their recruits are going to have to stop and pray five times a day, not really falling in line with the Catholic mission. That's right. A big thumbs down. <laughs> That's right. Two thumbs down. That's right. Oh. <laughs> oh, you think it only happens in comic books. Well, Stan, you know, you, are you a big comic fan? Yeah, I actually like comics. I do. I, my kids have a collection that I handed down. Stan Lee's great because okay. he's in every single Marvel movie that they ever make is a little cameo. I think he's fun. 
That is a, that is a good idea. Yeah, him and Steve Steve King does the same thing. Stephen King. Yeah. Stanley Media losing the bid for comic rights in the Ninth Court. Now, Stanley Media is not to be confused with Stanley himself. A federal judge made the right move in dismissing Stanley Media's claims that comic book legend Stanley infringed on intellectual properties rights by licensing characters Lee created. A panel for the Ninth Circuit ruled on Wednesday. Stanley Media Incorporated. A Colorado corporation had urged the Ninth to revive claims that Lee, its former president, had assigned the rights to his characters in 1998, a month before Lee inked another licensing deal with Marvel. The company filed for bankruptcy in 2001 and in 2006 launched a flurry of lawsuits against Lee and Marvel to reclaim the assets it says were stripped during bankruptcy. Federal judge in New York tossed Stanley Media action back then in 2011 for being well outside the statute of limitations. The company's actions in a Denver federal court against the Walt Disney Company, which bought Marvel in 2009, failed as well since it had already litigated the same key issues in the New York court and lost. In 2012, a federal judge in Los Angeles tossed yet another case, noting that previous dismissals in New York and Denver uh, as well. On appeal, Stanley Media... uh, Stan Lee Media's attorneys argued that Lee himself had never listed the characters as assets when he chaired the company. Oops. To cover up the fact that he had already assigned the rights to Marvel. Now you're talking about Spider-Man, Iron Man, X-Men, Incredible Hulk, and the Fantastic Four. In a per curiam memorandum, which Peter will discuss in a second, the Ninth Circuit panel affirmed the L.A. judge's dismissal, holding that Stan Lee Media had failed to show Lee had ever assigned the rights to his characters to the company at all. So basically, you got a guy working for a company, creates something, and doesn't license it to the company. The court also noticed that, interestingly, Stan Lee Media's latest complaint never mentioned its rights to Lee's lesser-known characters, which it claims the comic book creator also assigned to them and then took elsewhere. Therefore, the court said, we need to consider any potential claims related to the Lee characters, and we affirm the district court's dismissal. So there you go. You have somebody working in, in a company, this is similar to that watch situation we talked about last week. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think Protect that when you assets. yeah, I mean, think that that's just something that uh, you see all the time when you get somebody that has created something great, and um, you know, if you don't protect it the right way, you end up losing it. And it goes back to, I mean, wasn't the Beatles who had lost the rights to a ton of their songs? Mm-hmm. Was it yeah, Michael it was. Jackson bought them? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, you know, I think when you are an, an artist and you're creating things, I think that one of the things that artists in general, and when I say artists, I'm talking about recording artists, um, you know, uh, drawing, painting, whatever it might be. I think so many times the artistic elements of what you're doing, they take over and you forget that you're also involved in what potentially could be a business. And then you just act as an artist, not as an artist who is also a business person. And you make bad moves. Now, Stan Lee himself has had problems in the past and has lost a lot of rights and money over his creations, but has managed okay. to maintain some, some slight level of control. Uh, but if, if my recollection is correct, when Disney bought the rights to Marvel... Stan Lee did not significantly profit from the transaction because a lot of his rights had already been sold off. So, okay. you know, it, it's really when you have created something that you think is a moneymaker, you know, a comic book, even a photograph, whatever it might be, you think it's going to be a moneymaker. 
uh, or you've got people expressing a lot of interest in it, you have to then start shifting your focus and saying, all right, well, now what do I need to do to protect this? Because how many times have I heard somebody in the art field say, oh, yeah, but nobody's going to want to take this. This is just something silly that I... Right, and then the next thing you know, you're you're embroiled in in some sort of lengthy legal dispute, and it's not always the way that you think that it should play out with copyright and intellectual property laws. So, you know, here and there are copyright and patent attorneys that specialize in that. Yeah, I mean, look, patent attorneys. People often ask about this. Patent attorneys have to take an additional test called the patent bar because patent law by nature is more scientific in in um in its its ground right so a patent is primarily dealing with moving parts and with mechanical issues that's why you'll see a lot of patent attorneys who were engineers in undergrad so they mm. become patent attorneys because they understand the mechanical components because when you patent something you're patenting a process or a device it's 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 a little bit different and it it becomes more of a specialty than trademark and copyright law so patent law is kind of its own animal and any lawyer that tells you that they can do a patent law case or claim and they're not admitted to admitted to the patent bar and they don't understand it you're just doing yourself a disservice so you know, an area that I always recommend that you, you hire somebody who is a specialist in that field is patent law because it's very technical. But other areas sure. of intellectual property, again, you know, you've also got to go to an attorney that has some familiarity and been involved with that sort of litigation. You can't just go to your, your local real estate guy and say, I've got a, a copyright infringement case. These cases are extremely complex, and you can see here how this company, they, they filed for bankruptcy in 2001, and here it is 2014. They're still looking to sort of get the rights that they lost, and it's really not the rights they're after. It's the money that comes from those rights, because since Marvel was purchased by Disney, Marvel's stock has shot way up, you know, as far oh, yeah. as you know, the movies that they've come out with now – Ever since, I mean, Marvel or Disney made an it absolute, well a month. Yeah, they made a great investment, and yeah. you just can't stop it. You cannot stop the machine, and so now all these people that lost money on it because they were they they thought, you know, that uh, the the Guardians of the Galaxy and and that the raccoon was a ridiculous mm-hmm. idea, and now look, it was a huge blockbuster, and they're making a ton of money <laughs> off the raccoon. You know, they should have protected it. That's right. <laughs> oh man, yep. From comic books right straight to the Olympics. Stay entertained for a little bit, kind of jump into that side of the show. Uh prosecutors to appeal Oscar Pistorius's judgment and sentence. South African prosecutors will appeal the verdict and the sentence in the Oscar Pistorius case. A spokesman for the country's National Prosecuting Authority told CNN on Monday. Judge sentenced Pistorius to five years in prison last week after finding the double amputee track star guilty of culpable homicide or negligent killing in the shooting death of his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. Prosecutors tried to claim that he wanted to kill her, Pistorius saying that he just mistook her for an intruder and accidentally shot her. The appeal does not necessarily mean that either the verdict or the sentence against Pistorius will be thrown out. It's even less likely he will be freed at the end of what is likely to become a six-month process. 
Prosecutors are arguing that the judge misinterpreted a complex South African standard defining a technical form of intent that proved to be central in the aspect of the case. As a result, prosecutors argue he should not have been convicted on the culpable homicide charge chosen by the judge. Prosecutors originally took Pistorius to trial on a murder charge. In explaining her sentence, the judge concluded that Pistorius did not intend to kill Steenkamp, but critics of the verdict argue that the judge didn't correctly apply the intent standard. In their appeal to the sentence, prosecutors would have to prove the five years given to by the judge is shockingly inappropriate in light of sentence guidelines and similar cases. Now, prosecutor is calling for a minimum 10-year sentence, saying the negligence in Pistorius' actions borders on intent. Now, that's, that's an interesting statement right there, bordering on intent. If an appeals court finds that five years is shockingly inappropriate, court could set aside and issue a new one, she said, but the appeal courts in South Africa are reluctant to get involved in sentencing decisions. Could this ever happen in the U.S.? Well, to an extent, but the law is different um, in South Mm -hmm. Africa. And so I think that in the U.S., there's a good chance that he might have walked. I really think that that he might have walked away with a, a Far lesser sentence. Um, I mean, look, in the U.S., we, we kind of let people that kill other people go, and we put Real Housewives of New Jersey in jail. That's the way we do it here. Um, you know, so somebody that, that, that doesn't want to comply with the a bull... Based on the burden of okay. proof. Yeah, they're okay. Yeah. You know, rapists, murderers, you know, the O.J. Right. and we'll get to him in a minute, but I think that um, yeah. <laughs> uh, this case is interesting, this Oscar Pistorius case, because if you look at, right, and you've got to look at what the, the jury was looking at, he really, really seemed to be um, honest with his emotions during the trial. And really, right. you know, you could almost believe him that this was an accident. And so it all then hinges upon South uh, South African law concerning this idea of, can gross negligence actually be considered or or border intent? And I, you know, I have a hard time with that concept. I think that yes, you could be grossly negligent and still have no intent. That's the separation between the words negligence and intent. Um, right, right. But I, I don't know. I, I kind of feel bad for him, and and maybe I'm um I'm, I'm off with. But there's something about the case. I don't know. Well, it's 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 that degree of there 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 there's there's doubt. You don't know yeah. what he did for you. know he shot her. You know he shot her through the door. But like you said, the intent. You don't know why. And I thought it was interesting in this case as well that they could bring him up on murder charges and like a and not find him guilty of murder, but in the same breath say, well, you don't meet this but you do meet this and you'll be guilty of that. They, you know, don't, they don't define the charges. It's kind of like the U.S. where you could say, you know, we're going to be charging you with murder, but then ultimately mm-hmm. it's downgraded to to a manslaughter conviction. You know, there's it's some something like that, but it's but different because of the different standard. Um, but yeah. here's a guy, he's a double amputee. He has no no legs. And I bet you any money he wished that he had legs and no thumbs because this wouldn't have happened. (laughs) 
Very difficult to pull a trigger when you've got no thumbs. <laughs> Two-handed operation. <laughs> uh, and then if he had fumbled the gun, he couldn't have said, I'm all thumbs. So, I mean, that would have been difficult as well. So. Totally. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, we'll see what happens with that. But uh, I think, you know, I'm, it'll, it'll be interesting to see everyone saying that South, South Africa is not going to do anything. Um, speaking of not doing anything, at least for the last few years, O.J. Simpson, as you mentioned, has final filed his final habeas brief. One final effort to free himself from a Nevada prison has cleared all the hurdles and awaits a decision from the Nevada Supreme Court. Uh, the court in 2013 denied Simpson's habeas request for a new trial on a 2008 conviction for armed robbery at a Las Vegas casino. This is the interesting part of it. Simpson submitted his responding brief on Friday claiming his initial trial and subsequent appeals counsel were ineffective according to the Strickland standard by not demonstrating that his convictions for assault with a deadly weapon and armed robbery amounted to a double jeopardy and should have been merged into a single conviction. Peter, you're going to have to go through and explain this in a second here. Simpson also claims his counsel did not raise the issue that Simpson was entitled to instructions on the lesser included offenses of the uh, larceny and the secondary kidnapping because he believes one of his attorneys was partly responsible for the plot to rob two men to retrieve mementos and says the attorney intentionally sabotaged the case to avoid legal repercussions. Now, what he's saying is that basically I got convicted of this and this, but this lesser charge is certain because I was going to the higher charge. And that's why he's pleading double jeopardy. Is that correct? Am I understanding that right? Yeah. Right, that's right, because you know they, you can't be charged, you can't be tried in New Jersey or in the U.S. or anywhere in 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 the U.S. Not just limited to New Jersey. I don't know why I was thinking of New Jersey, but um, when when double jeopardy is being charged for two crimes that essentially are the same crime, so you can't go in and say that um, you know you're going to be charged with with burglary, but then there's a murder that comes out of it. So which what are you tried for? Are you tried for the the burglary separate and then the murder separate, or is it all rolled into one? While you can have uh-huh. multiple charges, that's basically what it is. So that's where OJ's going with this. But I think the whole thing is fascinating with him because I think at this point, I think everybody knows that he's a murderer. And if you don't, I think, you know, you're you're living in the in a dream world. And, <laughs> How could you not, after all these years, you see what has happened? And that's, I think, what sort of made it so easy for him to be put in jail for this this theft. Oh, because, absolutely. absolutely. You know, he claims he was going back and stealing his own, what was his own memorabilia and merchandise that right. had not been paid for or something. Um, and so, you know, here we are. I actually have the brief in front of me. And, ah. yeah, it's, uh, let's see, it's. 18 pages. His attorney's Patricia Palm, and um, you know it's it's a well-written brief, but um, we'll see what happens with this. I think that people are going to have a hard time with O.J. Simpson because I I oh yeah I think everybody knows that the the criminal trial with respect to the murder was flubbed. And I think that all the evidence that was there um, really pointed to the fact that he had something to do with this if he was not, in fact, the person that murdered them. Um, so I think because he's free of, of, of that charge, 
I think that the you know the legal system in general, it's kind of like karma. They're trying to give it back to him in another <laughs> way. But. Question is though, based on technicality, does he have a chance? I think he might have a chance. I think it's a small chance, Yikes. but he might have it. But I do think that the overwhelming um, thought process is going to be how can we avoid ever saying that O.J. Simpson was right about anything. And so, you know, <laughs> those ugly ass shoes. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's a frivolous motion. I think that there's a chance, but hopefully it's such a slight chance that uh, we don't see O.J. in a new Naked Gun movie anytime soon. <laughs> nor the light of day. Well. He may have a chance, but Manuel Noriega does not. Finally, following up a couple times, we've talked about this case. CNN telling us a California judge has dismissed, finally, the former Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega's lawsuit against the creators of Call of Duty, the video game franchise. The court concludes that Noriega's right of publicity is outweighed by defendants' First Amendment right to free speech. Judge William H. Fahey of the Los Angeles Superior Court said in an order on Monday. Noriega had argued that the 2012 video game Call of Duty Black Ops 2 damaged <laughs> his reputation. Uh, creators, I don't know how that's possible. Creators of the video game called the lawsuit frivolous and absurd. They filed a motion to dismiss it and arguing that the Noriega's portrayal in the game is protected by the Constitution. Former New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, I can say it this week, says this ruling is an important victory and we thank the court for protecting free speech. The video game Includes historical footage and real life, several real-life characters in Cold War scenarios, including Marine Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, uh, who actually did his own voiceover for the game and acted as an advisor, probably got paid. <laughs> Noriega said in the July lawsuit that he wasn't consulted or compensated for the use of his likeness. Well, ta-da. <laughs> There's all sorts of historical figures there. Former Cuban leader Fidel Castro, David Petraeus as well. Now, in a statement Tuesday, Activision describing the game as historical fiction said Noriega's lawsuit could have had far-reaching consequences if it hadn't been thrown out. And I think even be throwing it out, it has some consequences with the NCAA. You know, it does. And I think that the way Activision was looking at this is, all right, if you're going to say now that all historical fiction has to be somehow checked and approved and you've got to give the go-ahead, then we're mm-hmm. taking the out of video games and trying to find you know relatives in the Bonaparte dynasty so you could get permission and that sort of thing. Um, I think the fact here is that if this if this case involved somebody who was reputable and who was not a terrorist or mass murderer, it might have held a little more uh, weight. But I mean, you've got Manuel Noriega. I mean, who could ever in their right mind give him money? Because he's in Call of Duty. I don't understand what he was thinking. But um, interesting enough. He's, he's just mad he's not making any money on the speaking circuit. Yeah, really. Um, <laughs> Kevin Spacey's going to be in the new Call of Duty game. And Kevin Spacey actually had himself all suited up and, and became digitized. He does the voice. I'm sure Kevin Spacey's getting paid for it. Nobody feels it necessary to ask permission from Manuel. And that's too bad, Manuel. Now, maybe the, the, the next uh, leadership or motivational seminar that I give, maybe we'll invite him up to uh, to talk about it. <laughs> I did. I did have uh, El Presidente scheduled to speak. Unfortunately, he's being incarcerated and can't make it. <laughs> I'd like to hear about his ways of motivating employees. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, right, thumb work. screws are not going to work. <laughs> Sorry, it's my last dig. <laughs> oh, man. Some people are so lucky. Oh, yeah. But this is nice because we finally have a resolution of this issue. Oh, we followed yeah. it for a few months. This is nice to have conclusion. And, and Rudy Giuliani was, um, I mean, he was the lead attorney on this and took great pleasure. I read um, another <laughs> article where he had so much to say about Noriega and, and how he uh, was very proud of himself for doing this. So, But it's nice to have sure. nice to have closure on something. Absolutely. <laughs> Oh yeah, well maybe next time. Is he? Uh, is he? Is he? Is he slated for parole or is he a lifer? I don't know. I, I think he's out sometime. I don't think he's he's a lifer, but you never know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, he should be. So hundred twelve. Yeah, should be thankful that he's even relevant because you know, being in a video game is probably the most publicity he's had in a long time, and it was probably sure. a very fair. And uh, accurate description of of what he's done. There was a lot of killing and cigar smoking. There's, and there's actual actual potential he would not be incarcerated. He yeah. had a chance in the video game. Yes, that's right. Maybe they'd let him play it in prison. He could live by <laughs> digitized self. He was he 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 was sent in um, on September sixteenth, nineteen ninety two. He was sentenced to forty years, but was later reduced to thirty. Oh, so so it's good behavior. Right? Anytime. Eight more years. If I were him, what I would do is I would come out and I would create your own competing video game game company. That's what I would do, Manuel. And you can star in all of them and pay yourself for it. There you go. We have to have him on the show. Showing what his age is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, He's got a chance. He does. He does. All right. Well, that uh, <laughs> looks like it's going to do it for us this Wrap week. Up. Yeah, we got some... Uh, I don't know. We have some good things to follow up on. Um, I definitely think we should follow up on some of the stories we talked about today, and we'll uh, you know keep you in the loop. It's always interesting and 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 satisfying when a story that we talked about concludes because you know first of all I called it so I feel good about myself if I could reach <laughs> I pat myself on the back but uh, did too much work over the weekend and I can barely move my arm so we won't be doing that. Well, um, I get you. I don't, I don't have thirty bucks for your doctor's note. Sorry. <laughs> oh well, yeah. Remember, remember, anybody in Nova Scotia, just go to work. Ebola, whatever you got, just go to work. Save yourself the thirty dollars. Um, all right. I want to remind everybody, though, um, on a serious note, before we leave today, again, today kicks off the start of the annual coat drive, and we really want to try to hit that thousand coat mark this year. So please. You know, bring down your your coats to our office. It's serving as our donation center. Um, come down. You'll get a tax deduction, a, a tax receipt. Uh, it, it's just really a really worthwhile, wor- worthy cause. And um, oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of charity that goes on at the holiday time, and then you think about these people who are needy next year. But what about the rest of that year? What about the rest of the winter? And that's why this is such a great charity because, you know, you could give somebody a turkey dinner at Thanksgiving, but that doesn't help them two days later when they're freezing cold. So this is a real good event, a real good charity, because it's going to give somebody that that coat that they're going to be able to go through the winter with, and otherwise they might not be able to afford it. 
And, you know, I've seen stories on the news of little kids that don't have coats, and, and just it breaks my heart because how could you send your kid to school with no coat? But if you don't have the money for it, what are you going to do? And so that's why this is such a great cause. So please make sure that, you know, if you've got questions, I'm going to give you the main number to the office. It's 973-949-3770. Uh, you can call with any questions. We take donations that are mailed in to us. We take physical drop-offs. However you want to get us the coats, you know, we're going to make sure that they get to, um, you know, New Jersey Cares, and they then distribute them directly to the people in need. So make sure that you participate in this year's coat drive. Also, uh, Bob, you should take a listen this Thursday because, you know, Alan Fisher is going to be on, and uh, you could probably take, pick up some tips uh, about arm there wrestling. You go. And, and, you know, I bet you he'll tell you that it's very difficult to arm wrestle without thumbs. It's very difficult to lock up and, and to, you know, so I, there goes her arm wrestling career. I, there's so many things she can't do now. It's very, trying to figure very, out if that would give you an advantage or not. I'm trying to I, I work in my own here. But I, no, I think you need that leverage of that thumb. Look, thumb wrestling's out. Gun shooting is out. Go. Arm wrestling is out. I just, it's really torture. Torture. Really bad. Can't be really bad. <laughs> I guess you can, right? So, oh. all right. It's, yes, you have another one. I, I've got them. Nah, I'm just. I'm, I guess I'm just going to thumb my nose to this whole situation. I guess. I don't know. All right. So that's going to do it for today, Bob. Thank you. We will be back next Monday with more entertaining news because it's always good to start Monday off with a bit of a laugh. Um, although these are also serious stories, you know, you have to make light of some of them, uh, just because, you know, they've got some elements of, of humor in them and, you know, it's, uh, can't be serious about everything. Life is serious enough. So, and, and how much fun could you possibly have with the law? We've got to be able to twist it just a little bit to make you laugh just a little bit. Right, Bob? Oh, oh it's twisted. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Yep. Yep. All right, so we will see you guys back next Monday, same time, going through the news. Tune in tomorrow for Legal Q&A Live, 10 a.m. Eastern. Also uh, simultaneously broadcast on YouTube Live, so you can watch the video or you can listen to the, um, you know, the audio broadcast, download it at a later date, whatever you want to do. And then tune in this Thursday, 10 a.m. We've got special guests, Alan and Carolyn Fisher, talking about the upcoming season of Game of Arms and talking about motivation, determination, and, uh, you know, how he has prepared for this coming upcoming season mentally, how we can take some of his lessons and translate them into business success for ourselves. So uh, thank you all for listening, for downloading. Don't forget to give us some feedback, comment on what we've done, let us know if we're doing what, you know, you like, the stories that you like, the information that you like or need, and, uh, you know, just let us have some, some feedback and insight into whether or not we're doing a good job for you guys out there. You can do so by going to utlradio.com and posting directly on the site, sending an email, or leaving a message through any of our uh, social media links, which are at the top of utlradio.com. Until next time, I want to remind everybody that there's power in understanding the law. <laughs>